The Old Testament reading for the third Sunday after the Epiphany is from Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel in St. Mark, the first chapter. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the gospel of the Lord. We now grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at the Jonah reading, but not just the reading we had, because that reading doesn't make a whole lot of sense, apart from the rest of the book. It's a very short book. In fact, it's really a brilliant piece of literature. It's a masterpiece in the Hebrew language. And yet, it's a really odd book, especially for a prophet, because in Jonah's book, he barely talks, like almost not at all until the last chapter. He flees from the Lord when he gets his call. He does everything the opposite of what a prophet should do. And everything he does seems to have bad consequences. Well, almost everything. What I want to look at this evening is what we can learn about the Christian life from Jonah's folly. So first... In our reading, it said, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Because the first time it came to him, the Lord said, arise, go to Nineveh. And we're told, Jonah fled. Jonah leaves. Jonah gets on a ship. He's hoping, as best we can tell, to get to a resort town. He wants to go to the rich place to hang out on the beach and not have to deal with the Ninevites. He doesn't want to go there. So he gets on the ship, and he hides on the ship, and he falls asleep. 
Not the sleep like Jesus on the boat of someone trusting in God, but the sleep of someone who's trying to avoid God and what God wants him to do. And yet, each step of the way, the Lord is there following him. And the pagan unbelievers on the boat, who are used to worshiping other gods, they act more righteous than Jonah. When he tells them, it's me, I'm at fault, this is the reason, they don't even want to throw him overboard after he says, throw me overboard. They don't want to have the guilt of his death on their hands. And then when they do throw him overboard and the storm stops, they vow to pray to God and offer him sacrifices. That is the one true God. They're converted in spite of Jonah's sin. It's really fascinating. And yet, there's an important question. Why does he flee? What is he hoping to accomplish? Now, why he flees, Jonah reveals at the end of the book, and we'll look at that when we get there. But what's he trying to accomplish? Does a prophet of the Lord really think, does he really think that he can escape from the presence of the Lord? It says he fled the presence of the Lord by getting on a boat and going far away from Israel. I don't think that's what he was thinking. I don't think he thought he could flee God's omnipresence, God being everywhere. He thought, if I get out of Israel, I don't have to hear God's word anymore. I don't have to hear him tell me, arise, go to Nineveh. If I get out of country, I'll be left alone. That obviously didn't work. And you may look at Jonah and say, man, that's really silly. How could he do such a thing? And yet, let's consider ourselves. How often do people skip church because they have a guilty conscience and they don't want to hear what God has to say about that sin? I can tell you as a pastor, it happens all the time. How many times do you have a hard time opening your Bible or praying because you have a guilty conscience, you have unconfessed sin, and you don't want to hear what the Lord has to say? When we do those things, we do exactly what Jonah did. That's what Jonah was trying to do. He's trying to not hear what the Lord has to say because he's being disobedient. He doesn't want to do what the Lord says. And so he does everything he can think of. He gets on a boat. He goes into the depths of the boat. He goes to sleep, hoping he can ignore what God has to say to him. And we do the very same things. So the first part of Jonah's folly that we need to ask ourselves and learn from is, how have we been like Jonah in trying to run from what God was telling us in his word? What have we done that we should not have done that we need to confess? What haven't we done that we should have done that we need to confess? And one thing we can learn from Jonah right off the bat is we're not to run from the Lord when we're struggling with sin, when we have unconfessed sin, when he tells us to do something. Instead, we should run to him. So you'll notice in the book as we go through this, he can't escape the presence of the Lord. He can't get away that easy. And neither will you. Now, what's fascinating is, 
It seems like perhaps when Jonah says, throw me overboard, because later he'll say this, he'd rather be dead than go to Nineveh, that he's content just to die. He's not expecting to be saved. He's okay if he dies getting thrown overboard. And yet, the Lord sends, at the very end of chapter 1, a great fish to swallow him up, and that is his rescue. That is his salvation. And it's really fascinating. He's in the belly of this great fish three days and three nights. We'll hear more about how this is a beautiful picture of death and resurrection later. But what's fascinating is, is that we see that Jonah is indeed a saint and a sinner. Again, he's a lot like us. He's been disobedient this whole time. And now he's in the belly of this stinky, smelly fish. And he prays. He prays quite a beautiful prayer. Clearly shaped by the Psalms. He prays about how he was going down to the depths, how he was going to die, and how the Lord rescued him. And he even prays this. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That is a beautiful, beautiful line. That if you worship idols, you forsake all hope of God's steadfast love. And so Jonah, for all his sin and folly throughout this book, here in chapter 2, we get this glimpse that he is indeed a Christian. He does indeed hope in God. He does pray to him. He does know that it's God who saved him, and he thanks God for that. And yet, he's still fighting against God. At the end of the chapter, it's rather gross, he's vomited out onto dry land. I mean, I think it's one of the things. There are several, if you look at historically Nineveh at this time period, there are several signs they see in the heavens and other things that accompany most likely Jonah's preaching. But imagine the people that see him get vomited onto land that he walked into town with, and people going before him and saying, hey, that guy coming to town? He was just vomiting out of a great fish. Can you believe this? And then he starts preaching. Before we get to his preaching, what application can we draw from Jonah and the belly of this great fish? The application is, no matter what our circumstances, we should pray to the Lord. The devil plays this game with us, and we, with our conscience... Before you sin, he minimizes the sin. And after you sin, he maximizes the sin. So before you sin, the devil says, it's not a big deal. Go ahead and do it. There's no harm in it. Who are you going to hurt? But then after you sin, he maximizes. He makes it seem huge. What you've done is so awful, you surely cannot go to the Lord and pray to him. But we can learn from Jonah, the saint and sinner, that no matter what we've done, even in the very midst of our disobedience, there is never a bad time to pray. Pray to the Lord. Call out to him for help. You see, the devil makes us think when we're being tempted and we're about ready to give in to temptation, the devil makes us think it's too late. That you're past the point of no return, but it's not true. We can pray to the Lord. We can run to him. What does Paul say? 
that in the midst of every temptation, there's a way of escape. What is that way of escape? It's Jesus. So, too, when we've sinned against the Lord, rather than let the devil convince us that we can't go to him because we're too dirty, too filthy, too sinful, we can learn from Jonah that no matter what the situation, the best thing we can do is pray. Now we get to our text for the day, chapter 3. It is an amazing chapter. I don't know if you caught it, but it's the greatest conversion in the entire Bible. There is nothing like it. Everyone in the city, from top the king to the bottom to the animals, humble themselves, fast, and confess their sin. It's rather fantastic. There's nothing else like it. And it comes about through half-hearted, begrudging, bitter obedience. So he's just prayed. And the Lord makes him go to Nineveh anyway, even though he didn't want to. And the picture you get, you have to use your sanctified imagination a little bit, is Jonah kind of shuffling his feet, dragging himself through the city, saying, hey, in 40 days you're going to be destroyed. He doesn't want them to repent. He does not want them to repent. Luther says perhaps Jonah preached more. We don't know, but this is all we're given in the text. But whatever the case, he wasn't really into it. He didn't want his audience to repent. We know that from chapter 4. And yet, the Lord blesses this half-hearted, begrudging, bitter obedience. And it brings about one of the greatest conversions we see in all of the Bible. An entire massive city repents. So what can we learn from this Part of Jonah's story. It's better to obey than not to obey, even if we're doing it half-heartedly. Because the Lord can work in and through you, even when you're not really up for it. And yet, we should be striving to do all things in faith. We should be striving to obey with our head, hands, and hearts. It should be all of us into what we're doing where the Lord has placed us. But even when we don't, even when our sinful flesh gets in the way and messes things up, the Lord can still use you. He can still work through you in spite of all your flaws and sins and everything else. The Lord can still take that and do things that are beyond anything we can possibly comprehend. It's quite a comforting thought. Especially, quite honestly, as a pastor. It's comforting to know that in spite of all of my flaws and sins and all that I get wrong as a pastor, that the God can still take it and bless the people hearing it because it's his word that brings about change, not the pastor. That should also encourage you not just in all vocations, but even specifically then in evangelism. Jonah was like the worst evangelist ever. Like, absolutely the worst. He didn't care about the people. He didn't want them to convert. He didn't want to do it. And yet, they all converted. They all did it. What a comforting thought to us who are trying, out of love, to share the gospel, to know that it's in God's hands. 
and he can do with it what he will. Which brings us to chapter 4. I want to read this to you because I think a lot of people miss this. In fact, in every children's Bible I've looked at except for one, they skip this part. It ends with Jonah preaching. It ends with them converting as if that's the end of the story, but it's not. Not by a long shot. This is right after it says they converted. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What displeased Jonah exceedingly? He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is it not what I said when I was yet in my country? Now, we, now we're going to hear why he fled. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah's angry they repented. In fact, the very next thing Jonah's going to do is he's going to go up on the hill by the city and set up camp and watch for God to wipe them out, hoping God changes his mind. And the Lord says, do you do well to be angry? The whole scene is amazing, because even as Jonah goes up, and he's pouting, and he's angry, and he's waiting for God to wipe out these sinners, because the Ninevites were horrific people. They were some of the most bloodthirsty, wicked people in the ancient world. You can look it up, you can Google it, and read about the things they did to people. It's horrific. Jonah knew that. Jonah knew if they had the chance, that's what they would do to Israel. And Jonah wanted nothing to do with saving the Assyrians. He would rather die than watch them be converted. He would rather have them burn in hell than repent. That's why Jonah fled. That's why Jonah's angry at the end of the book. What blows my mind in the last chapter is not Jonah's anger so much. His anger I can understand from a human, fleshly, sinful perspective. What amazes me in this chapter is that the Lord is so patient and loving and kind to this wicked prophet. The Lord doesn't just wipe out Jonah for his anger. He keeps asking him questions. Do you do well to be angry? Why are you so angry? It's pretty miserably hot where Jonah is, so the Lord makes this giant plant grow up over him to give him shade. Then the Lord makes a worm eat the plant, and then Jonah's being beat by the wind and the sun, and he's miserable and angry again and wants to die again. And the Lord asks him, you pity this plant. You're upset that I killed this plant. You didn't do anything to make the plant happen. And yet, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there is more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The Lord's patience and mercy is on full display. If you or I were the Lord and we were dealing with Jonah, we probably would have wiped him out on the spot. To talk to us like that? I mean, can you imagine the arrogance of Jonah to talk to the Lord like that? To say, I knew you were merciful and that's why I didn't want to go. I knew you were loving and kind and gracious. That's what he's mad about. It's fascinating because the book ends with a question. We don't know Jonah's response. Because the question is for all of us. 
What is our response specifically here to when the Lord saves people that we may not like very well? But I'd like to us to expand on that. Because the fact is, as Christians, if we're honest, there are times when we get quite angry with God as well. And we yell things at God just like Jonah did. Maybe not the same things, but we get upset, and we yell at him, and we tell him we don't understand why he's doing this or that thing, that we thought he was this way or that way. What is he doing? So ask yourself, is there anything I'm angry with the Lord about right now, and why? But then we can learn from Jonah something else here. It's okay to wrestle with the Lord and argue with him and take these things to him. But the thing we don't see Jonah do that hopefully he does in the rest of the story that we don't know is humble ourselves. We can go to the Lord and we can be upset and we can take our frustrations, we can argue with him and we can go at it. But at the end of the day, we need to humble ourselves and say, you are God and I am not. Another thing I think we can take away here too is that we must not ever let bitterness and spite take hold of our hearts the way Jonah's heart was consumed with bitterness towards the Ninevites. He would rather die than watch them repent. That's how much bitterness is up in his heart at the end of this. So we've got to repent of that too, lest that kind of bitterness destroy us. The book of Jonah is fascinating. Jonah's folly fascinates me because I think Jonah's a prophet that's a lot like us. He's a saint and a sinner. There are times when he just says, Lord, I'm not going to obey, and he doesn't obey. There are times when he's stuck and he cries out to the Lord even while he's struggling with obeying the Lord. There's times when he's angry with the Lord. I find all of that very relatable. And yet the Bible tells us that the one greater than Jonah is Jesus. That Jonah's three days, his three nights in the belly of this great fish is a picture of Jesus' death. Is being vomited out three days later as a picture of Jesus' resurrection. That Jesus is the one who steps in. He is the prophet of prophets. He steps in and he takes humanity's curse, the sea of creation's groaning, the sea of suffering, death, and damnation, and even the sea of God's wrath. He rises and he overthrows it. He overthrows death and hell. He swallows up God's wrath for us. So that when we are more sinner than saint, when we're struggling in our sin, we have one who's defeated sin for us. We have one who's greater than Jonah that we can run to. Looking at Jonah's folly calls us to repentance. But even more than that, it calls us to faith. It calls us to faith in the one who was patient and merciful towards Jonah and that because of Jesus, the greater Jonah, he is patient, patient and merciful with us as well. Amen. The peace of God passes on understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.